just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. Tomorrow, Salt Lake City Mayor Erin Mendenhall will give her annual State of the City address. She is newly reelected, and this is the start of her second term. So what's on the mayor's mind as she looks to the future? I asked her how she's thinking about some of our city's biggest projects. It's Monday, January 29th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall, welcome to your second term in office. Your last term was marked by an enviable start with the pandemic, an earthquake, windstorm, all in the first year. In your inaugural address this year, you said this term will be, and this is a quote, forged by historic opportunity. What is Salt Lake City's biggest opportunity in the next four years? And you can only choose one. Green Loop. Do you want me to go on? (laughs) Yeah. Downtown will have doubled its downtown residential population by about this time next year since when I started as mayor. Uh, About 10,000 people will be living downtown. And it's not stopping. There's more permits in the pipeline, and we're still the fastest-growing state in the nation. In Salt Lake City, you probably know this, but more households have a dog than have children right now. And there's been a lot of reporting over the last couple of months about the decrease of families in the city, but also, you know, what's our quality of life as we take our dogs out uh, at least twice a day to do their business. These are the tiny details that end up playing out into who our residents are and what our quality of life looks like. And thanks to Brigham Young, who gave us six ox cart U-turn wide streets in our downtown. Yes, that is actually the truth. He said, if you're driving a six ox cart, we need 132 foot wide right of ways. So you can turn that baby around. Got to be about the size of a Ford (laughs) F-150. A dually? Yeah, probably. We don't need that on every single city street. And the Green Loop takes advantage of some of that 132 foot wide street on 2nd East, on Ninth South, where the Nine Line is, uh, Fifth West, and South Temple and North Temple on the north end, and turns it into a park. And I, I want to see these parks created for our residents today, but also for the next 50 years. And I think they should, could be created in a way that is in public-private partnership, that takes advantage of some of that capital as well, but builds not just great places for us to walk our dogs, but places for families and kids, places for pickleball and pop-up bars, stages and cornhole and whatever else we want to do as Salt Lakers. Yeah. We're pretty big fans of the Green Loop over here on the CityCast team. Emily and I actually led a walking tour of the Green Loop with some of our members. But I have to say, I'm surprised you didn't say the Olympics. 
Well, that is a fantastic opportunity. Um, and I think we're on the right track to sign that contract in July. It's looking good. We're in great shape for it. But my bigger concern is what our everyday life is before that and every day after that. So I think the Olympics can be a tremendous wind in the sails of let's get this stuff done and come on, let's get together with the state and other partners to tackle the really big challenges that we absolutely should no matter what. But when you have a time date stamp of when the world is coming to your front door, it has proven in the past to be pretty motivational for the state of Utah. Well, I want to talk about sports a little bit because it kind of feels like in the past year in particular, we have been at the whim of billionaire owners. Ryan Smith might move the Jazz out of downtown. Now he wants an NHL arena. Gil Miller moves the bees to daybreak. Now she wants Major League Baseball on the west side. It's a bit of a whiplash. And I wonder, how can you take back control when it feels like the billionaires are in the driver's seat? The truth of sports development in this nation is that it's a public-private partnership in almost every case. And Salt Lake City is anxiously engaged with any of these partners who want to bring more of an epicenter of sports and entertainment and recreation to our downtown. And let me just note that when we do that and when we build a strong downtown economy and experience, it benefits the entire state of Utah. This is not an opinion by the mayor of the city. This is economic fact. It resonates with the chamber and with the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute who look at what happens when we have a strong downtown and keep raising that banner with us that that growth should happen here. So what the city can do, and I think what other levels of government are looking to do as well is look at what we have to bring to the conversation. That is a guaranteed focus on benefiting our residents. We're literally legally obliged to be explicit about what the public benefits would be if we participate, which is a really cool thing, I think, for us as taxpayers. And to look at what land opportunities we could bring to the conversation. So space and money are the parts of the public realm that affect these conversations. So it sounds like you're saying those are the two places the city can find its power in these negotiations. Yes, the city and the county. Well, you are hosting your annual State of the City Address downtown at the Eccles Theater on Main Street this year. By the end of your next term, which will be roughly fall 2028, I feel like we're never going to get there. But what do you want Main Street to be like? Paint a picture. Main Street last had a facelift about 25 years ago. If you look at the planters and the sidewalks and the lighting, it's one of our most used and most beloved spaces in the downtown area. And it's, it's due for an update. How we update that should be family and pedestrian focused. That means it feels safe. It's approachable in terms of public transit. You still should be able to drive into the downtown, but that most of all, you want to get out and walk around. And our ability to make Main Street friendlier for all of that and bring businesses out into the public right-of-way, I want to see the opportunity for parklets to happen. You know, when a business, whether that's a retail business or a, a food or a drink establishment, spills out into what was a parking space and has some beautiful mm. sunny area off of the sidewalk. Um, we should be revamping our art presence along Main Street as well. And I'll stretch that 
as we have with our Main Street conversation to include first south where it, it reaches over to the convention center. That whole area sees tens of thousands of people walking through it throughout the year, and we are due for a facelift and making it into a pedestrian promenade that's great year-round. Well, there was talk about open streets forever, which would basically kind of make Main Street a permanent pedestrian promenade. And I know the city was conducting surveys and collecting feedback from residents about that. Do you all have a sense yet of how excited people might be about that or where concerns are? Yeah, we had over 5,000 people participate in the Main Street survey. And the majority want... Yeah, we want to see this become a pedestrian promenade in a permanent way. As we look at the Green Loop opportunity, which I already told you is my my number one desire for that 10-year horizon, we need to make sure that downtown remains functional, you know, that we can still double our workday population as we do as the capital city and get people in whether it's for work or for a jazz game or just to come shopping and have a good time. And that's what we're going to be balancing as we look at how we can pedestrianize Main Street in a permanent way, maintain function of the area and make sure those businesses can function as well, and then establish a massive park footprint surrounding the downtown core. And I think it may have to include vehicles, especially during the workday but our temporary barriers and infrastructure that we've you know, literally drug into place for these weekend closures of Main Street could become way more functional and not plastic barriers, but ways that we can predictably and easily block off the street for festivals and um, open it for just pedestrians on the weekends. And I think that's the direction that we're likely to go with Main Street. Okay, so it sounds like public feedback on this proposal was we don't want Main Street closed off to cars permanently. Public feedback was that we want more pedestrian access to Main Street. And we like the activation of doing pop-ups, art festivals, art box pop-ups, dance parties, performances, and having that atmosphere on Main Street does require more space then we've given it through the infrastructure that's there now. And I think that it's possible for us to both get much more play space on Main Street for the public and for businesses to come out and have cafe space and places to lounge and still have a functional ability when we need it through Main Street. What's the timeline for transforming Main Street into a more pedestrian-friendly space? We are still in the conceptual phase, but we did a pretty big public survey that wrapped up at the end of October. And right now we're working through economic development with the community and downtown businesses to talk about how should this play out? How can we evolve it? And at the same time, the city's looking at what financing tools that we may have to do this work and make it actually happen. So over the next I'd say six to eight months, the community is still involved in the conversation with us and building. Okay, so it could be a couple years before it's fully, fully formed. Yes. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court 
and this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you want to learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. Let's talk more about neighborhoods, because one of the biggest local stories of the past year is the closure of four elementary schools in the Salt Lake City School District due to declining enrollment. We always hear that there are more dogs than kids in Salt Lake City now, and part of that has to do with affordability and a lack of housing options, and also what kind of housing we're building. How do you intend to support more families living and staying here long term? Yeah, the city has put an incredible amount of money on the table, and the reason is that we have a growing <laughs> downtown, which isn't a surprise to any of us. If we were in a city that was stable, really wasn't seeing any new growth, or worse, that was a city that was in decline, we would be faced with having to build and create new housing or affordable housing um, on our own. Because we have partners coming in here with private dollars, putting up cranes and building units, we're able to basically buy down the rent on those units with an investment that comes from our tax dollars. Basically, it would be 18 times more expensive if we had to do it on our own. And our money is a very good interest rate. That's why it's attractive to the developers for a portion of their capital stack. But our exchange for doing that isn't just affordability, but they get a higher priority if they have family-sized units. And we brought that focus into even a finer point when we developed the Perpetual Housing Fund. And that's now acquired its first building. It's the tower over on 500 East and 1st South on that northeast corner. It's been an office building for decades, and it's going to be transformed into perpetual housing. And it's our ambition that the majority of those are family-sized units, so bigger than two-bedroom. Okay, I was going to ask, is that bigger than a two-bedroom, two-bath? Yeah, three to four-bedroom. And we've been funding more four-bedroom and three-bedroom units than we have in the past. We're putting another 
13 million out there through the housing development loan program to both to support the preservation of existing housing and to create more affordable housing. Yeah. I mean, on the note of not just affordable housing, but affordability in general, a pathway to home ownership is so important for a lot of Salt Lakers. And we see a lot of apartments go up and it feels like we see less condos. How are you thinking about pathways to home ownership for residents? The Perpetual Housing Fund is just that. It creates with $10 million, which is the, the last of our rescue plan funds from the federal government in the pandemic, it creates 1,500 new units. And 500 of those 1,500 are for ownership. Basically, the fund becomes your equity partner and you can access ownership and then grow your equity and a portion of the equity goes with that owner and the other portion stays in the fund and builds more housing. Of the thousand units that are not for ownership, they are also wealth building. And they're doing it in a way we've never seen in Utah and is fairly new across the nation. This is where instead of investors getting the revenue off of the building every year as a distribution check, that money goes to every resident in the building and can help create a nest egg of cash. Basically, as a renter, you are one of the stakeholders and shareholders in that building as long as you live there. In addition to that, if you live there for a number of years, then you and you move out to buy, whether it's a condo or a single family home, it doesn't matter. You'll be able to take some cash out of the project and use that as well toward the down payment of what you are going to purchase. Okay. So 500 of these 1,500 units that are expected to come online, I could purchase just me, Ali Bayarta, with down payment support? Like, how do I get connected with that program directly? Yes, so even you, Ali Bayarta, could become a homeowner through the Perpetual Housing Fund. You can check out the website at phfutah.org, and the fund helps make up whatever the gap is in your income to qualify to purchase the value of the unit. And then you share the growth in the equity as you own it over a period of time. And so whenever you choose to move out, you'll take whatever portion of that equity is yours, and the other piece of it stays with the fund and helps grow future housing. Got it, okay. On the note of housing, I want to talk briefly about homelessness. Last year, the city invested in and stood up the state's first ever temporary shelter community program, which I got to tell you was not on our bingo card for that year. The plan now is for the state to take over the temporary shelter in the spring. What other bold moves might we expect from the city around homelessness as the state becomes more involved? Yeah, I think that the success of the pods is so critical to the future of homeless services in the state of Utah. And that's because the barrier to entry for these pods is lower than at the homeless resource centers, which we, I say we collectively, across the system, state, county service providers know that we need very much, which is to say that there are great many people who aren't going to go into a homeless resource center, even in the worst weather circumstances. Um, Allie, you and I separately were both out doing point in time count this morning. I talked to people who told me, again, 
I'm never going to go in there, no matter if you have a van here waiting to take my things and a bed waiting. That's not a place I'm going to go. The other part about the pods is that it's the dignity of independence. Supportive services wrapped around, but you get a door that you can shut and you can go to sleep in a unit alone. That's a game changer for the system. And so these 50 units that are opened up on city land right now, and as we have been planning with the state, will be moving to state-owned property sometime this year and hopefully growing so that they can operate another sort of pod of 50 units in the same area. That will prove out that this type of service and shelter works in the state. It's our ambition that we grow this across the state of Utah. People across this great state of ours are experiencing loss of housing and are not able to find the support and the housing and the shelter services that they need in the communities that they should. And pods are not only affordable, but if we can find ongoing state support for communities, rural, suburban, and urban, to operate these supportive spaces and transition people back into housing, it will not only save us money as taxpayers, but it will bring the humanity that these individuals deserve. So is it safe to say then that the city's approach in the coming years would be to leverage the fact that the temporary shelter community is working and may be expanded and continue to stand those up and transition them to state hands? I think what the city's been especially and for the first time perhaps in such a profound way successful in is evangelizing that homelessness is a statewide challenge and that the housing crisis and frankly the decisions at local city councils across this state to not invest in deeply affordable housing to in some cases not even allow through their zoning the existence of services and shelters is a tremendous challenge that the state has to grapple with and they've begun to and wayne niederhauser's done a really good job for the state of Utah in bringing transparency about what's not working with the system and what's on the line if we don't start to solve this in a permanent way. And what I mean by permanent is this can't be one-time funding that patches a hole and then we leave it alone from a legislature perspective for 15 years and come back and then do it again. We have to get ongoing revenue. We have to have continual creation of permanent supportive housing. We're wasting our money and we're compromising our ability to continue to grow our economy as a state by not dealing with this in a permanent way. And we say in Governor Cox's budget right now that's before the legislature, a three-year bridge of funding, which would be great. It's more than we've had in the past. It's usually been year to year. And that three-year bridge is so that we can work together to find an ongoing revenue stream to do this work permanently. As a show, we find ourselves exploring all corners of this city and often myth-busting. We all know as Salt Lakers what the rest of the country thinks about us. Snow, an arsenic-encrusted lake bed, caricatures of Mormonism, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think Salt Lake should be known for? Ooh, I love going to conferences and and uh, meeting mayors no. and they're like, where are you from? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Where are you from? And I tell, I'm from Salt Lake City. Oh, 
why, what do you do there? <laughs> like, why would yeah. you? And I, in some ways, I don't want to tell him how rad we are. I just tell him, you, you don't know how good it is. And it's the people. It's for sure the people of Salt Lake. We just keep showing up for each other. We show up in an emergency. We show up when we have big plans and it's on the calendar. We show up and run in circles around a whale for a marathon on a Saturday. We show up and do a point in time count and feed people. And I think when we're in it, we might take it for granted how amazing Salt Lake's communities are and how much we thrive on celebrating each other. But it's a, it's a really unique part in this country. And I think the, the other part that's built in is that almost anywhere you are in the city, you can get on a trail in 10, 15 minutes. And that access is growing all the time. Um, and Glendale Regional Park is going to be a big addition for the west side that we've never seen on the west side. So our beautiful natural spaces, but most of all, our people. Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on the show. Mayor Mendenhall's State of the City Address is Tuesday at 7 p.m. You can watch the live stream on the city's YouTube channel. I put a link in the show notes for you. If you and your friends come up with a good, like, State of the City drinking game, send it our way. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Bye.